look like that. So then when we came to sort of assembling some part of it, I came up with my master plan. I said, we'll leave it for Martin. <laughs> and so yesterday, well, Martin's good at that sort of stuff, you know. And um, it took us about six hours, and we've got the frame up, haven't we? Yeah. Do you know the problem, really, is, and this is the purpose of what I'm saying, is sometimes we, we come to the Bible, we come to the Word of God, and we think, oh, I mean, that is written in Hebrew in part of it, and it's just, it's like mind-blowing. And we think, well, leave it to somebody else. Leave it to the guy with the mic. Leave it to somebody who's been to Bible college or whatever. The problem is, unlike Greenhouse Assembly, and I can strongly recommend him, right, You've got to read your Bible. Martin doesn't need instructions, he's fine. We've all got our own walk with God. And you can't call anybody else in. The only one you are going to call in is calling on him. It's great to gather together. It's great to worship together. It's great to come to home groups together. But that is just scratching the surface. I, I, I can't say any clearer than that. It is what you do outside of this building, outside of the events that we actually put on and do and try and help you and everything, but ultimately it will come down to tomorrow morning, whether you get up in the morning, do we involve God in your day? We've all got the choice. If you want a bigger Bible, I've got one at the front, look. I won't try and pick it up too much, but there's a purpose why that's there. If you haven't got a Bible and you want us to buy you one, we'll buy you one. But we can't read it for you. But if you want something... You see, if I'd assembled that greenhouse, it may well have been upside down. I might have had a glass floor. But God's put enough stuff in his word to tell us how to live. And it was great what Matt said. Absolutely fitted perfect to where we're going. That actually, we are his creation. We are here to show the world... In fact, I'll use one of my stools. We are here to show the world something, and the world needs to see it. It's a nice stool, isn't it? The for sale downstairs. So what I'm going to do today, we're going to go, th- go through a big chapter of the Bible. I'm not going to spend too much time unpacking the text. There are a couple of things I need to come out of this passage. and But most of it was just self-evident. So let's put the Bible up on the screen for me. Hmm. 1 Samuel chapter 20. Little recap. David's life has fallen apart. We've followed him from shepherd boy to giant slayer. He's been at the height of popularity. The women used to sing that Saul had slain his thousands, but David had slain his tens of thousands. He was elevated through the ranks of the army. Life was getting so good, and then it all began to fall apart. And hear what I'm saying. He'd done nothing wrong. It's not as though David is in sin. It's not as though he's made any bad choices. Any of that nonsense. Actually, David is exactly where, he wants, where God wants him to be. And life falls apart. It begins by Saul getting jealous and starts throwing javelins at him, which is never a good idea. Don't throw javelins at each other. Throw love. Build up. Build up, not tear down. By this time, by the time we come to chapter 20, 
David has been on the run. His wife has aided him to escape. So he's lost his family. He's a fugitive now. We saw, just before I went away on holiday, that David had gone to Samuel, his mentor. The one who had announced to David, as a child, you are the chosen one, the anointed one of God, the next king of Israel. Really? Well, then why is everything falling apart, God? Why are people trying to kill me if you've told me I'm going to be the next king of Israel? So David flees... This is where we pick the story up, from Ramah. That's where Samuel was. Saul had sent three people to, or three groups of people to kill him, and in the end, Saul himself had gone, and God had intervened supernaturally. The people were, if you like, slain in the spirit. They couldn't do anything. They were, they were helpless before the power of God. So David goes back to his closest friend, Jonathan, and he asks these questions. What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? And as I've just said, he's done absolutely nothing wrong. But those are the questions he asks. Moving on, Graham, please. Never, Jonathan replied, you are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why should he hide this from me? It isn't so. Well, David knew it was so. He hadn't dreamt these spears being thrown at him. He hadn't dreamt being chased away. He hadn't dreamt that people were outside his home waiting to kill him in the morning. He hadn't dreamt that his wife had lowered him out of a window. These things were true. But Jonathan had been, Jonathan is Saul's son. He had been kept out of the loop, if you like. But David's gone back to him and he's asked these questions. So they're going to hatch a plan. They're going to put a plan in place to find out whether or not what David is saying is the truth. Move it on, Graham. But David took an oath. You don't need to take an oath. You just need to let your yes be yes, and I'm the same, and my no be no. But in those days, they took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favour in your eyes, and he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this, or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only what, there's only a step between me and death. Jonathan is probably about 40 years of age. David at this time is probably about 20 years old. He will spend, by the time we get to the end of this chapter, he'll spend the next 10 years on the run. Think about that. 10 years as a fugitive. 10 years of running away in fear for your life. When Jonathan had first met David, he saw something in him. He saw uh, a kindred spirit, a, a belief in God, a, um, a desire to honour God's name. And Jonathan, it said, loved David. Not in a bad way, in a great way. Challenge number one. As I look around the room, I know the Spirit of God dwells within people. Shouldn't we be able to love like, like that? Think about it. Think what draws us together. Jonathan would risk his life for David. Jonathan will, in this passage, acknowledge that David is God's choice and Jonathan should be next king of Israel. But Jonathan will lay down his rights. He will humble himself and say, no, no. It's not about a dynasty. It's about God. 
What a great thing if we could make that a target where the Spirit of God draws us together closer and closer and closer. What about that? Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there's only a step between me and death. I can introduce a new stool. Do you know that's true? It's true then, and it's true for you and I. Since I've been back from holiday, I was talking to somebody, and they were telling me about a member of their congregation. And this lady, she's 52, she took ill, she went to the A&E, 11 days later she dies in a hospice. Do you know, that puts life in perspective. What you've just been through puts life in perspective. And how easy we forget this stuff. How easy we waltz through life thinking none of that. But let me tell you something. The Bible reminds us that our days, we should number our days. We should number them. None of us know what next week's holding. Do you know what? None of us know what's happening this day. But how about living in light, not in fear, by the way. Death holds no fear for the believer. But actually living a a life where we can say, do you know what? I don't know. I know who holds today. That'll do. But how about actually prioritising our life the right way? Hmm. Two stools. Bear that in mind. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. And that's a big ask, isn't it? Imagine I'm in a church where people say, I'm here for you. Whatever you need, I'm your man or woman. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast. I'm supposed to dine with the king, but let me go out and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. He's making a plan. Actually, what he's going to do is ask is ask him to lie. Go ahead. If your father misses me at all, tell him David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to the town of Bethlehem because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. David's going to skip the festival. If he says very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, there's a good chance for that with Saul, you can be sure that he's determined to harm me. There we go. Two choices. Either he will just say that's fine, or actually he'll lose his temper. Move on. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I'm guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? What is a covenant? Yes, that will do for, for the purposes of it. It's deeper than that, to be fair. But it, is, it, it forms a, an agreement between parties. Who are we in covenant with? Look, it's a Sunday school answer. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's not hard, I'm not tricking you up. Never, said Jonathan, if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? And the point being is, look, these guys love each other. It's a deep love, affection love. I want the best for each other. And if Jonathan knew this, this to be the case he would already have made him aware. We know that Jonathan was promised by his dad in the previous chapter that actually the uh, contract on David's life, for want of a better description, had been withdrawn. But it hadn't been withdrawn. Jonathan just thought it had. 
So David says, well, okay, that's great. Who's going to tell me if your father answers you harshly? How am I going to find out what dad's up to? Come, Jonathan said, let's go out into the field. So they went there together. So you imagine they've been in some sort of building, maybe at the camp or wherever. They go to a particular field and they hatch a plan. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. And if he's favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? So Jonathan's taking the initiative. He's taking the onus on himself. He's protecting his friend. It's all going swimmingly so far. But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely. You don't want that. If I do not let you know and send you away in peace, may the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. Jonathan knows that God is with David. He knows that David is the anointed uh, successor to the, to the throne and he's calling heaven to be a witness. Do you know everything we do is before God? Everything. There's no hiding place. Do not bother trying. In the dark, in the light, it's irrelevant. There's not one thing in your life that you can do without God knowing. Hmm. I could make a joke, but I won't bother. Go on. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut, me, cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Normal practice in those days, and if you read the Old Testament, the the, the previous uh, way the rulers would operate and subsequent rulers would operate would be a new king would come on the scene. The first thing they do is wipe out the family. You don't want any skeletons there in the background looking for a way to do you harm. That was life in those days. And what Jonathan is saying, look, David, when you reach your kingdom, when you come, become king, remember this family. David's going to do it. And actually, he does do it to Jonathan's son. Jonathan will die with his dad on the battlefield, but David will remember that day. And not only will he remember that day then, he will not actually harm Saul. And he has opportunity to harm Saul. But it's still part of the agreement that he won't. So Jonathan made a covenant, there we go again, a contract, if you like, an agreement with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan made David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Love, love, love. It's all great, isn't it, so far? Isn't it? Aren't you glad you came to church? Just light, isn't it? It's not deep. It's not making anyone feel uncomfortable. Brackets yet. Okay. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon feast. You'll be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow towards evening, go to the place where you hid when this trouble began and wait by the stone of his L. Stop it there, please. The stone of his L. Uh, no. Thank you. Uh, if I fall on the floor, you'll have to get off your seat. Right, okay. I'm going to talk to you about the stone of his L. Right. And it's so amazing that some people in the room may think what I'm about to say is made up. And so I thought I would choose a Bible where I knew it would be in. Right? If you don't believe what I'm about to tell you, I've actually got it on the page about the stone of Israel. 
There is a stone in Israel and it's called the stone that shows the way. And this is that stone. It's not a small stone. It's a big stone and it was like a boundary marker. But it's the stone that shows the way. And where this story is going is that David is hiding behind the stone. He's close to the stone and he's going to wait while Jonathan sends the message. It's a rock, it's not a stone. Can anyone guess where I'm going with what I'm going to say? Thank you, Tanya. So nice to have you back. Where have you been for the last six years? God is our rock. Are you stood next to your rock? The rock that shows the way. Okay, let's see. Move on. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I was shooting at a target. Jonathan, um, obviously an accomplished um, fighter in the, in the forces and good with his bow and everything. He could hit the rock if he wanted to. Don't hit God. Don't hit your rock. Stand by him. Build your life on him. So this is, this, this is how they do it. Can you move on? Then I will send a boy and say, go find the arrows. And if I say to him, look, the arrows are on this side of you, bring them here. Then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe. There is no danger. What he's saying is, look, there's the rock in the field. If the arrows fall short of that rock, then come. Rejoin the family. Come, there's no threat to your life. What's the alternative? Let's have a look. If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go and notice the words here, the deliberate, because the Lord, the Lord has sent you away. Let's have a, a little poll just to wake you up. 50-50 question, where does David want the arrow to fall? Anyone fancy long? Short. Look what he's leaving. If it, if it goes long... Right? You've lost your wife. You've lost your, your work. You've lost your position in the army. You've lost your family. If that arrow falls before that rock, everything is back to how it should be. If it goes long, you're a fugitive. Where's it, where's it going to go? Long. And that will trigger a line of events for ten years. Why? Did God make the arrow go long? Sorry, Tanya? Absolutely. A journey which was not of his choice. Actually, a journey which you could say would be exactly opposite to the choices he would make. It's quite reasonable to believe that. But you see, David is the anointed king, but he's not yet the king he's anointed to be. Now spin it. Spin it and make it personal. You are chosen. You are called. There's a plan in place for your life. You stood next to your rock. Are you going to follow his way? Or are you going to follow your own way? I don't want to embarrass my gorgeous wife, but I'm going to share a personal story. I am hoping... 
I am hoping dearly that she knows this story. Else we'll, when we go to Leicester, we'll be having a chat. When my marriage fell apart, and I, um, I lived with 14,000 chickens, look, I didn't know a lot of people. And so I decided to get back in the game. Whatever the, I was never in the game, let's be fair. Right? But I decided to get back in the game. I would try dating. And so me and 14,000 chickens decided it would be a good idea. And I met a lady from Peterborough, a nice lady. Look, you know, and she was nice. And we went to the pub and we had a couple of drinks. And um, it became apparent as the evening wore on that what I thought would be uh, a Christian, some people have a different opinion of what a Christian is. Right? She wasn't a believer. We didn't believe the same things. And so I took her home. And we parked outside the, the, the home. Now, bear in mind, at this time, I am as low as I've ever been in my life. I'm crushed, I'm rejected, my value system has been turned on its head, and life is pants. Life is just dreadful. And I'm next to an attractive lady, and her words came out of her mouth. Would you like to come in for coffee? I've seen it on the movies. Right? I know what happens next. Right? And I'm faced now, and I, I, let me tell you something, not once did this rock of his L come in my head, right? That's just not there. All sorts of things came into my head, but nothing to do with the rock. And I said no. And I drove out of Peterborough very, very fast and didn't get a speeding ticket. But let me tell you what would have happened had I said yes. And I'm not going into the details, but my life would have gone tom completely the other way I had no idea what was to come but I would have made a choice which the world wouldn't have thought was a problem she was as feeling as pants as I was her husband had rejected her we were two lonely vulnerable people but I chose God's way and from that decision I stand here today and I tell you this hand on heart I do not believe had I got out that car, I'd have been here today. And that's the point with David. If you'd have asked David, look, look, I want to go home. I want to go back to what I know. I want, to, I want all my security and everything. But actually God says, no. Actually, David, I've got a plan for you. And if you're going to follow me and be the person I've called you to be, then actually you need to make the tough decisions. And those tough decisions aren't the obvious ones. David has no idea, 3,000 years later, you and I are looking at what happened in David's life. No idea, how can he? He doesn't probably care what, what, what we, about us. He has no concept about that sort of time scale. But it's the same with us. Who knows what God will do with a surrendered life to him? You and I don't know. And I'm not saying that 3,000 years from now, people are going to say, wasn't Matt great? Or whatever. That's not what I'm on about. But you've no idea what God will do with a life surrendered to him. We'll move on. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan. And Abner, Abner, 
the commander of the army. David knows exactly who this character is. He's a right ruthless, ruthless one. Sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. He could have been in touch with a dead body or whatever. There's any number of reasons why David couldn't have attended the festival. Surely he's unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. And then Saul said to his son Jonathan, Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? And Jonathan asked David earnestly. Sorry, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. That's a lie, by the way. He said, let me go because our family's observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I found favour in your eyes, let me go to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Oh, joy. Move it on. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, Please don't do this to your children. It's not just because it's in the Bible. It doesn't mean we all do everything that's in the Bible. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Well, you you went out with us all. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse, not even using David's name, to your own shame and to the shame of of the mother who bore you. Move on. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Notice that. Saul knows that Jonathan should be the next king. He knows that David's going to be the next king. He's asking Jonathan to to, um, be selfish, to ignore what God is asking him to do. Saul knows that David is the chosen king. We've gone through those passages. Now send someone to, to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. Well, that was the questions that David had come to him about. Moving on. But Saul held his spit. He must be a dreadful shot. Don't you not think? I mean, this guy needs practice, doesn't he? He keeps throwing spears and missing. I don't know why he's king. And then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. He's not a dinner guest you want round at house. Move on. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger and on that second day of the feast he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. So, in the morning Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him. The boy has got no idea that he's playing a part in the line of Jesus. Sometimes we have no idea what God is doing in our lives or around us. He's just a small boy. Uh, You'll meet this guy in heaven. And he's the guy who picked arrows up. At that time, that's what God wanted him to do. He said to the boy, run and find the arrows. As As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, isn't the arrow beyond you? Picture that scene that morning when David, next to the rock, sees Jonathan enter the field. It's totally out of his hands. He has no influence in what will happen next. God does. Even if Jonathan had tried to fake it and just let the arrow fall short, God would have gone, 
the emotions running through him at that time must have been intense. Will it come before me? Will it go beyond me? There are times in all of our lives, through no fault of our own, that we are put in a position where we can't influence anything, where we can just trust in God. And one of the hardest things I think it is for Christians, I include me, because I'm saved, just for the record, one of the hardest things is to learn how to judge whether you are in the will of God. And so much rubbish is around to influence us saying, well, if life is good, and if this is happening, and this is happening, then that's the will of God. Well, try telling David that. Try explaining to a David. Try explaining to somebody, try explaining that to somebody whose son goes to an operation and doesn't come back. Try explaining that as you wait for the results of some tests. And the test results aren't what you think. Because I've had two of those since I've been pastor in this church. When you're actually waiting and you're not in control of events. But you are stood next to God. You can build your life on the rock. The arrows have gone over his head. The boy picks up the arrow and returns to his master. Unaware of what's happened in his life. Move it on. The boy knew nothing about all this. Only Jonathan and David knew. And then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go carry them back to the town. I, I suspect what we're not being told is this, look. Maybe Saul has asked people to watch Jonathan. I know Jonathan and David are close friends. So they've, they've come up with this ruse. That actually, in case anybody is watching, it's just a normal th- event. Jonathan target practicing a boy with him, so he's got he's got um, an endorsement, if you like, about about what he's doing. He's not doing anything in secret. They look around. There's no one there, and so they will meet now, and they will only meet one more time before Jonathan dies. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. And then they kissed each other, just the eastern kiss on the, on the cheek, and they wept together. They wept together. David wept the most. And he's exactly where God needs him. He is 100% in God's will. Isn't life hard sometimes? It, it really is. He's done nothing to cause this. He's done nothing. He's tried to fix it. But actually God's plan for David. David, I need you to leave all that behind. He's taken into a place, look. David, in a few chapters' time, will be at the place where God wants him to be. And God will begin to rebuild David. But he can't do it yet. And he does that with us. I, I, I see it in people's lives. I've learned the secret of watching. Don't always get it right. Look, and some of this stuff can hurt. But he builds people up. But he has a greater purpose than us. In fact, that's a great way to introduce another stool. I'm not on June's commission. It's all right. I'm not trying to flog them. But there are three stools there. So, 
I'll leave it there. But I'm going to show you a video. In fact, we've got two short videos before I come back up. Don't even try and listen to the sound. The first one doesn't have any. You haven't gone deaf. The sound system hasn't failed. And the next one's in some foreign language. It's not that what I'm trying to do. But I'll show you something and then we'll get to the point of the message. When I was 30 and 31, I worked off the coast of Newfoundland, and this is an advert for what we used to do. We used to get paid for this, it's dead easy. They're going to tow an iceberg. Sometimes the icebergs tow the ship. We, deal, we dealt with one with 7 million tonnes and we weren't towing it anywhere. How much of an iceberg is underwater? Yeah, quite a bit, isn't there? We can move mountains. Yeah, I believe it. Straight on to the next one. Here's a bigger one. Graham. So what am I trying to say? See the book that someone had lent me mentions about the Christian walk and he quotes an iceberg 
he describes a picture of an iceberg. And I think one of the things that we struggle with, all of us struggle with, by the way, is that we allow God into part of us. We surrender the bit everyone else can see. A bit like an iceberg. And that's fine up until a point. But there is so much more to each one of us in this room. So much more. Whether it's nine-tenths, whether it's two-thirds, submerged or whatever. And sometimes when life really gives us a kick, we're a bit like an iceberg. We roll. When you're hooked up to one of those things and it does that, that is scary. Because when seven million tons decides to show its other side, it'll take it to the bottom of the sea. Particularly if you're doing it in a force seven or force eight gale. But that's the life we are in. All of us are in that. We skim along the surface without with our walk if we're not careful. There's so much more of God. There's so much more God can do with everyone in this room. Kay said to me, don't forget the stools. I won't forget the stools. Let's put the next scripture up for me, please. This is the version in the New Testament of a similar story. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. That's the cost. It doesn't hide it, you know. That's what it costs to be a disciple of Jesus. Did you all hear that? I don't believe you. We'll show the next scripture. Oh no, sorry, verse 27. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Isn't God clever how he writes this stuff? Because he knows we hear it with one ear and then we let it out with the other ear. That was a joke. Not very good one, but still a little joke. A little light-heartedness. Twice. Twice, he says it. Does he say it again? Move it on. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, ridicule you saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Fancy starting something and not finishing it. Fancy starting a greenhouse, Martin, and not finishing it. So I believe Martin will finish it. I have faith in Martin. Saturday. <laughs> I'm a man of faith. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off. In other words, work it out. Look at life. Look at what we have to do. Last one. Move it on. In the same way, those of you who do, do not give up everything, you have cannot be my disciple. That's the cost. Okay? Why bother? Why bother? Well, when we paid a vast amount of money for the sign outside, 
It says Beacon. The Beacon. We didn't just dream that name up or have a vote or anything like that. Actually, how it came to be called the Beacon was we went to a prayer meeting and someone used the words, Lord, let this building that you have given us, you're not paying rent, we're not paying anything, we're here by God's grace. And he said, the person praying said, let it become a beacon in this area. So me being the pastor immediately forgot that. And then at another meeting, someone prayed and used the same words. And then someone said to me, that's the same what happened to the other prayer meeting. So twice now God is saying to us about being a beacon. And then being the pastor of the church, I immediately forgot because we wanted to call it the S20 church. But we were laughed, weren't we? We were laughed down. But then someone came in on Monday morning to the food bank and he said to me, look, this... On Sunday, it was your first meeting in the building that God has given you. And I, I couldn't be with you, so I was at my own church and I prayed and I asked God for a word for you. And I don't normally do this. He said, but look, God gave me a word. Does anyone want to have a wild stab in the dark? Come on. The beacon. So even I got the message. Even I got the message. We're supposed to be a beacon. We're more like a candle sometimes. I'm not having a pop at anyone. I, I swear to you, I'm not, it's not about having a pop. The, what do the three stools rec- represent? We had an approach from a, an organisation only r- recently while I was away. And we were able to help, help them with some furniture to set up a room for counselling. And it turns out this room is because three parents have committed suicide. Within a few miles of this church, families are without parents because they killed themselves. All at the same place. And I thought, as I'm driving the car, is that it? Is that what we stand for, God? Three blinking stools and a few bits of furniture. What about standing for what's in here? What about letting his light shine, each and every one of us? And saying, look, I don't know, I want to go that way, but maybe God's asking me to go that way. Maybe God's asking us to take some tough decisions. Who knows what he will do with this place? Who knows what he'll do with you and I? But it's got to be worth a risk. It's got to be worth a risk to say, three times I want to be his disciple. I really, look, I want to be a disciple of Christ. I had 30 odd years of managing my own life, pants, rubbish at it. Don't expect me to manage your life. I've got enough problems of my own. But what about you being a disciple? I'll leave you with that. We worship God. It's not a heavy message. Well, a little.